So this is maybe about two years ago, I had finished a diversity training for this large um, accounting company. And one of the senior partners came up to me and said, Jason, you did a fantastic job. And because of this training, I realize now that I'm no longer racist. Now understand, I think I'm a bad boy, right? I think I can get down with the best of them. But I don't know that I've ever thought that I could change, move somebody, move the needle from being, you know, racist to not racist in three hours, right? I don't care how bad I think I am. I, I don't know that I have that. That's like Barack Obama level. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Cedrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Jason Greer is founder and president of Greer Consulting Inc., GCI, a labor management and employee relations consulting firm located in St. Louis. Jason is widely known for his work in the area of racial reconciliation based upon his experiences as a victim of cross burnings and racial harassment by the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, KKK. This story and the resulting lessons have been given new perspective in his keynote, Diversity and the Brain, What's Your Story?, wherein he champions and celebrates diversity as a means of overcoming barriers to success and experiencing the best that an organization and or community has to offer. Jason is the go-to diversity expert and trusted source in the latest race and labor relations news for media across the country, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, LA Times, CBS, and NBC. He provides insight into breaking stories, such as the George Floyd moment, racial protests, diversity issues in the workplace, and more. In addition to his work as a national media expert, Jason is also an international best-selling author for the books Bias, Racism, and the Brain, and People Matter Most. Jason has been recognized as an employee relations and diversity expert by Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, ABC, CBS, Fox News, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine. Jason was also named as one of the top entrepreneurs to watch in 2020 by Thrive Global. Jason has conducted diversity training for organizations such as the United States Army, Google, Nike, Enterprise, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, Honda, and Toyota. Thank you so much for coming back to Diversity Dish. It's so great to have you back. Today, my guest is Jason Greer. Jason Greer is going to enlighten us about quite a few things, I think, today. So we're gonna, we're just gonna jump in and have this conversation with Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. It's such a pleasure and honor to have you here today. 
thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. So Jason, before we just get into our conversation, usually the, the starting point for our conversation comes from this question, which is, what are you passionate about right now? Um, in, in terms of the world of diversity, what I'm passionate about is the ongoing assault that I see across um, the educational stream, as well as in um, some corporate endeavors around critical race theory. It is something that is driving me crazy for many reasons. Uh, one being that the very people who are saying that critical race theory is the worst thing to happen to America are the very people that couldn't tell you anything about critical race theory. Right? <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's amazing how that has bled over into the corporate arena because I do, do a ton of diversity trainings around the country and love what I do. But I'll never forget, uh, sometime last November, um, a big, com a big uh, oil company had approached me about doing diversity training. And their only requirement was that I submit my PowerPoints as well as any accompanying material to their legal team so that they could make sure so they could vet it through, you know, whatever standards the um, federal government was putting out there about the push to make sure that critical race theory as well as any diversity training that they believe to be um, racist in nature against white people uh, fit whatever criteria Donald Trump, who was the president at the time, was putting out. And <laughs> I basically, you know, I basically said to the company because they were embarrassed to even say it to me, right? Right. And here's what I said to them. And you know, I completely respect the fact that you have a lot of federal contracts that you're trying to protect. Um, I'm probably not the guy that you want to go with right now because I think it's ridiculous that my material has to be vetted according to some phantom theory that's out there that your kids are being indoctrinated by critical race theorists, <laughs> right, across the nation. Right. So that's right now, if, if, you, if you hear it in my voice, that's what I'm passionate about because I'm just like, can we just get to the point where we can actually talk about the factual realities of the history of America? Hey, how would it feel to use your talents in the cause of social justice? It's no secret that Black, Indigenous, queer, people of color, or those who are part of any marginalized group don't get a fair shake, experience systemic racism, and must work harder for the same rights and privileges that white people receive just by virtue of their race. We also know it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes that can get overwhelming. Where do we start to make a real difference? What we know we need are upstanders and advocates, people ready to stand up, take action, and spend their privilege to help others. If that's you, I want to invite you on a discovery date with me. Discovery date is a full day immersion in your passions, talents, and desires to help you create a blueprint of powerful, focused action where you'll make the most impact. On your date, we'll discover your strengths, we'll find your lane, and we'll begin your journey. It's just that simple. Discovery Dates with Sadie. If you want to know more, just go to sedrolamariska.com backslash discovery dash dates. Hey, what are you waiting for? Come on over. I'm waiting for you. Yes, I... I ask that question all the time. I'm constantly wondering, 
why it's more important for people to be comfortable and to be ignorant than it is for them to understand and learn how we got to where we are. And that's all part of our history. It's not it's not something that people are making up in their minds. It's not something that we're just pulling from somewhere and saying, look, we, we want you to see this thing that is not real. This is mm-hmm. real, the real things that have really right. happened that have shaped what's going on. And yet people are more comfortable and want to remain in that comfort and yes. looking away and saying, well, I, if I don't, you know, it's kind of like a baby, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> You ever play peekaboo with a child? Yes. And they literally think you disappeared. <laughs> like their minds are blown. <laughs> Where did daddy or mommy go? <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, right? It's like, if we don't yes. look, it's not there. It's not real. And it just, it well, blows my mind. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. So I did a diversity training last month and there's probably about I guess by the time we got done, you're talking about 1,800 people that sort of filled this, you know, forget about social distancing, right? <laughs> that filled this auditorium as, as I'm doing this diversity training. Whenever we're incredibly well. And halfway through the training, somebody asked me a question because, you know, part of my approach is getting people comfortable with the idea of diversity, with the understanding that regardless of whatever bucket you come from, we're still part of the same fabric, right? Um, so somebody asked me this question, um, and at this point, I could tell this gentleman had felt really comfortable with me. He happened to be a white gentleman. And he said, well, what is it about, why is critical race theory being pushed in our schools? And you sort of heard like this, this hush kind of fell across the room, right? Because, you know, when we do diversity <laughs> trainings, uh, somebody called me the Tony Robbins of diversity training because I'm just, I get people pumped. I get them going because the more I can get people emotionally involved in it, the more willing they are to take it away. Um, you know, when they go back to their, you know, to their companies, to their places of worship, to their homes or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. And I asked him this question, give me the, give me a true definition of what critical race theory is versus what anti-racist education is. And he was stumped. And then I opened it up to the rest of the room. I said, okay, anybody here, give me an answer. And so one gentleman piped up and said, well, critical race theory teaches white kids that they are bad because they're white and they're racist. So there was a sister who I saw in, in my peripheral. Blessedly, I caught her before she was going to say something. I go, sister, hold on, hold on. I got you. I got you. I got you. And I go, okay, well, let, let's, let's roll with that. I go, who here went to graduate school? Maybe a handful of people raised their hands. And I go, in your graduate level programs, how many of you actually took a critical race theory class? And all the hands went down except for mine. Mm-hmm. Who here has children between the age of, let's say, five through 10? Bunch of hands went up. I go, so in between math, playing outside, exchanging love letters with their crushes, right? <laughs> And also talking about Tickle Me Elmo or whatever people between the age of five and 10 talk about, how many of them sat down and had a crucial conversation with their teacher about critical race theory and why the history of America is so racist? And all their hands went down. I go, now take it to high school. How many of you have high school students? Their hands went up. How many of you have actually sat down with your kids who have been traumatized 
by their English teacher or their critical race theory teacher, if such a thing exists, who talked to them about critical race theory? And all their hands went down. I go, so what we're really talking about here is a boogeyman. Let's, let's explore this. <laughs> because when we talk about critical race theory, we're talking about critical race theory from the perspective of asking a very simple question to a complex issue. Is there a discriminatory result from this particular law? Mm-hmm. I go, so how many of you believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was a great man? And of course, every hand went up, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. I go, so just imagine a day in which your kids don't have the opportunity to learn about Martin Luther King. Because when we look at the laws that are being acted, enacted around this country, even mentioning Dr. Martin Luther King beyond the sanitized version of what people generally hold Dr. Martin Luther King to be cannot be discussed. And I go, and how many of you want to go home the next time there's another George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, go on down the list. Mm-hmm. And there are mass protests, not just around the United States, but around the world. Mm-hmm. How many of you all then want to look at your kids and say, well, this isn't really happening. <laughs> Let's not have this conversation because that's not American. <laughs> that's not exceptional. Right. The fact of the matter is if we don't start having these conversations with our kids, if you're not getting in school, then I pray that you get it at home because in this information age, your kids are going to find out one way or another what's really happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And I would hate for them to look at you as the parent and say, you lied to me. Mm-hmm. You told me Black people, Latinos, Asians weren't making it in America because they were lazy. And yet I'm learning about this thing called systemic racism. And I'm mm-hmm. seeing how systemic racism is so embedded in our laws, in our culture, and our way of looking at things that we've now gotten to a point where something can be, something can be considered racist without the people who are enacting the thing actually being racist mm-hmm. because it's so embedded in the law. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry to get on my little soapbox. It's okay. But that's, that's why you're that's here. What, <laughs> yes, ma'am. But that's, that's what I'm so passionate about right now. It's just, we exist. It's amazing. What, what I generally tell people is this. I was a victim of cross burnings when I was 17 years old. Mm. So you're talking 1991. And what I generally tell people is it's amazing the amount of trauma that people of color, people from marginalized groups have gone through from an early age to the point where they know pain. They have a more familiarity with pain than they do love. And they have more familiarity with hurt than they do acceptance. Mm. That's not American. If we're really going to hold on to the fact that America is an exceptional country, and look, I'm so incredibly blessed because of what we've been able to do from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. So America is an exceptional country. Mm-hmm. But if we're exceptional, then why would we hide from our reality? Right. And also, you know, a good question to ask is how much more exceptional could we be if we didn't hide from that reality? Exactly. Right. If exactly. we if we actually confronted face on and said, you know what, this is not who we aspire to be. This is not what we want to be. And then we move through it because you got to go through it. Yes. You got to go through the learning. You got to go through the confrontation before you can come out on the other side. But if we would just go through it versus constantly pushing against it, we would yes. be so much better on the other side. I love Star Trek because <laughs> I, <laughs> I can hold that against you. 
I'm a Star Wars <laughs> fan. I'm a Star Wars fan. So, you know, it's got to be you know, one or the other. <laughs> does it really? <laughs> I just learned something new. Hey, I got um, you. I, you know, I, I love Star Wars as well, but I watched Star Trek and, you know, it's nostalgic for me. Yes. I watched Star Trek growing up. It was one thing that my brother and I did together all the time. And I think to myself, how do we get to that if we can't even confront right now the things that have happened already? Like we, yes. we cannot get to that place where all creeds and colors and, 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 and species for that matter, right? That's Star Trek. Like yes. everyone can be working together towards gold because we can't even we can't even look at our history and be real about it, right? right? Without someone being, feeling that we're trying to offend, which that's not the case. No one's trying to offend anybody. Everyone's just simply trying to say, look, this is what happened. This is the reality. These are the facts, right? And these are how it's shaped yes. where we are. So can we look at that? Can we talk about that? And can we work together to to change the outcome of this. Yes. But no one wants to do that. It's, it's you know, it, it, that blows my mind. Well, unfortunately, people don't want to do it. The people who are the outliers who don't want to embrace diversity are the people who their needs have not met our needs. So there's no common interest in it for them. Right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the fact, uh, there was a, a poll that was released in January, in July, that basically said that, I think it was a a Gallup poll that said that the, both white and black um, people believe that uh, race relations are at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is more than just perception, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, America's almost become, and maybe America always has been tribal. And when I say mm-hmm. tribal, when you look at our suburbs, our suburbs are more segregated, depending, of course, where you live, depending, of course, where you live. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to speak to the Midwest, uh, the suburbs. I'm going to really speak to St. Louis because in St. Louis, it's everything is divided into counties. North County is traditionally African-American, South County, West County, and whatever else other county you want to get are traditionally white. Mm-hmm. And as African-Americans and other minority groups start to move toward these new areas, white people typically move further and further out, mm-hmm. right? So what was farm country 30 years ago is now the up and coming suburb. Right. And the up and coming suburb traditionally doesn't look like you and me, mm-hmm. right? I think that I'm going to go back to the George Floyd moment though, mm-hmm. because that's one moment in which right, wrong, or indifferent people came together. Mm-hmm because people saw George Floyd assassinated because that's what I'm going to call it. He was mm-hmm. assassinated by former officer, Derek Chauvin. Mm-hmm. People heard him cry out for his mother. Mm-hmm. And even when the conspiracy theorists and the far right wing folks try to come on and say he was a criminal and they played the tape backward, the recordings, you know, they reversed the, uh, or rewound the uh, recording security camera it's still clear that he did not do anything wrong or at least do anything that rose to the level of he should lose his life. Right. So for, and I know it's been debated as far as how long he had his knee on his neck, but I'll say it's eight minutes and 46 seconds because that's what's imprinted on my mind and on my heart. 
So for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we watched this man literally suffocated. Mm -hmm. I wasn't surprised, but I was overwhelmed by the amount of frustration, anger, confusion, and all the things, all the necessary emotions that you need to push people to the point where they want to start having these conversations about what racism looks like. Right. The problem is emotions are hard to sustain. Yes. Because had we changed these laws that allow for a variety of things that often ends with people that look like us being disenfranchised, had we changed those laws, been able to change those laws within a month, that would have been great. Mm -hmm. The problem is moving the emotion from the emotion to now starting to make people feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to feel uncomfortable for very long. Right. And I don't know what your experience was like for me. It was every white person who from grade school, from high school, <laughs> people, people who I saw on the street for about three weeks, they wanted to talk to me. And they're like, I didn't know it was that bad. I didn't know racism was that bad. And I had to fight. I had to fight that urge to say, man, where have you been living? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But they were hearing my stories. They were hearing my story when right. I was 18 years old having a group of white men who threw a bottle at me and I only knew it was urine because it got in my mouth. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Hearing mm -hmm. the story that just being humiliated by the KKK, you know, burning crosses and protests in my family when I was 17, you're mm -hmm. talking 1991 through 1992. But the reality is I was sharing these stories because they asked. Mm -hmm. And then they stopped right. asking when it started to get a little too uncomfortable for them. Not right. everybody. But yes. I guess what I'm saying is that we're not going to get to a place to your point about um, sort of, you know, Star Trek. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get into that place until what makes me feel uncomfortable, what hurts me starts to hurt you. Right. And what hurts you hurts me. And mm -hmm. then we move as a collective toward making this world a better place, not only for ourselves, but also for the next generation. Right. Correct. Absolutely. I think, I think you're right about that. I think that the, the emotions, you know, whenever we have an emotion, we, we, we go through those emotions, we get yes. through them and then we move, we move away from them. If something doesn't happen in that moment, then it's like, oh, depending on who you are, you can turn away from that thing that, that triggered your emotion. Yes. Right. And I think that that's what happens a lot like oh my god oh my god oh my god I turn away and I don't look and then I feel better because I know that I would not have done that I know yes. that I'm not I'm not that type of person and so yes. I can now go along comfortably and as long as I don't look and and feel uncomfortable I can continue to go on comfortably right absolutely and that's part of the issue it's kind of like you can go on comfortably but people who experience this on a on regular basis, right? We're talking about Asians as well. We're talking yes. about Native, you know, um, Native Americans, Indigenous people. We're talking about gay. We're talking about trans. We're talking about people who experience these things yes. on a regular basis don't have that luxury yes. to look away. And so when you look away, and then you come back um, when you're faced with it and you come back with something trite, it does no good, right? Well, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. You know, I'm, I, 
you know, or it's more of a, what can I do? And then you get a response and then it's kind of like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. You know, yeah. there, there, there's so many things at play for sure. Um, but, and this is one of the reasons why I started the podcast. I was like, people need to talk more. People need to, you know, bring their stories forth as you're doing, but also say, these are some of the things that we need to do in order to help this be different. Yes. Right. You're talking about critical race theory, and I'm so glad that you brought it up because it's one of those things that people have a very strong opinion about, but don't know what it means. They don't realize that it's not taught in the elementary schools. It's not taught in the high schools. It is a college level uh, critical thinking course, right? And what they're thinking is, well, if we're teaching in our schools, about the history, then that's critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And we don't want that. So it's, you know, it's really important that we kind of, people kind of get a better idea of what it is they're talking about when they're saying something. It's like, well, yes. I'm not a racist. Well, okay, let's talk about the system that we're all living in right now and how it benefits or does not benefit you or how you staying quiet benefits you, but doesn't benefit someone else. Exactly. So there, there's so many nuanced conversations. I think that people kind of miss it sometimes. And, you know, I'm glad that it sounds like in your work, Mm -hmm. you definitely have great opportunities to, to get people to think and to process within, because I always say, I can't change anybody's mind. I can't change anyone. They have to do it themselves. What yes. I can do is give them the question, give plant the seed, give them the idea that they, they can mull over and kind of come to their own conclusions as they mull it over. Yes. That's where the change happens, right? Absolutely. Fundamentally, fundamentally changes. You know, I wrote a book um, last year in response to because I like so many folks were like, okay, what do we do now? We just, again, I go back, I call it the George Floyd moment because it's something I'm never going to forget. Right. And I reference it in, from a historical standpoint in terms of being an inflection point. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, with an inflection point, you can go one of two ways. You can bury your head in the sand, hoping that things are going to get better by the time you raise your hand, head out of the sand. Right. Or you can actually go out there and do something. So- and I'm co-authored this book with um, my colleague and one of my best friends in the world, a gentleman by the name of Phil Dixon, called Bias, Racism, in the Brain. And we take this, this idea of diversity from a different vantage point. Because, look, theoretically, even the most, even the most racist person is going to tell you that, conceptually speaking, we should be able to get along. Right? right. Conceptually speaking. Yes. But there are multiple layers as to why we don't get along across, go on down the line, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, um, color of your eyes, whatever the case might be, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But what I've come to learn is, look, we're doing this podcast. You're in Massachusetts, I'm in St. Louis, and we have all this wonderful technology. I mean, you know, hi, you can you can hide it's something 
and no one's going to get scared but hide their cell phone and they're going to break down in a full panic mode right <laughs> because we're so interconnected from a technological standpoint today i'm you know i'm 47 years old i never would have dreamt that we would have had all this technology and that would guide our lives mm-hmm. but the one thing that has not evolved is our brains because mm-hmm. our brains are still stuck because the idea of your brain is that it wants to keep you safe so your right. brain is still stuck in the mode that we're not living in the 21st century but we're living back in the days of our ancestors mm-hmm. in which the biggest, the biggest challenges for our ancestors, where am I going to get food? Where am I going to get water? And where am I going to sleep? Mm-hmm. And so our ancestors traveled in packs of people called their in-group and their in-group was anybody who looked like them, talked like them, thought like them. Therefore they were them. When you're in the presence of your in-group, this dopamine effect goes through your body and you feel good. Dopamine is the feel good hormone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But there was a survival component to that because when I'm with my in-group, now I know that I'm safe. I can actually lay my head down and go to sleep Mm -hmm. and trust that I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. But if you come across someone who's part of your out-group, that's basically anybody who doesn't look like you, talk like you, think like you, therefore they're not you, that's your out-group. When I'm in the presence of my out-group, the cortisol effect kicks in. Cortisol is a stress hormone, Mm -hmm. right? Part of the challenge that we have in our society today is that we are so disconnected from one another because we're not having enough opportunities, even in the workplace, Mm -hmm. where we're connecting on something that effectively changes your very DNA Mm -hmm. in terms of how you relate to somebody who doesn't look like you. Mm -hmm. So we're all walking around with this non-conscious bias toward other people because our brains are telling us a story about the outside world that's not true. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The reason why we wrote the book is to give people a better understanding of not only your brain, but also what you can do to get out there to change the very nature, the very structure of your brain mm-hmm. such that, you know, I'm six, three, 270 pounds. When I walk down the street, I'm very familiar with the clutch. The clutch <laughs> is I walk past a white woman and she clutches her purse. Right. right. It yeah. happens every single time to the point where when it doesn't happen, I'm like, oh, she must have black friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. right. <laughs> but if you were to pull someone as to why they clutch their purse, chances are they're not even aware that they clutch their purse. Exactly. Because your non-conscious brain is telling you a story about somebody else. Mm-hmm. Your non-conscious brain wants to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. But part of the challenge when we talk about critical race theory, when we talk about anti-racist education, people don't even know why they are, why this raises their defense. They don't even quite understand why they don't want their kids to be exposed to the idea that there's something different. Right. That there's it's, something different in history, that there's something different in America, that there's something different about the very home that they live in. Right. Because their non-conscious brain is telling them, if you change the way they think, they're no longer going to be part of your in group. Right. Right. It's very interesting. I, I, I have to read your book. (laughs) Hey, please do. Please do. You know, I'll tell you when we, when we set out to write the book, our hope was just to maybe sell 10 copies and give a bunch to our clients. And it went on to become an Amazon number one bestseller, as well as it's uh, become an international bestseller. So that's awesome. It sounds, it sounds incredible. I think it's so interesting what you said in terms of 
why, you know, how people, you know, with their kids, mm-hmm. you know, I'll tell you a story. I, my, when my son, my son is 15, okay. but when my son was about three years old, I took him to a McDonald's play place because I needed a break. <laughs> sure. Sure. I remember those days. I remember right? those days. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, let me take him here so he can run around with some other kids and I can just have a moment. Right. And as I was sitting there, he ate his food and he went, he went to play. And of course, and I was looking down at my phone, but of course a mom's ears always tuned into the sounds and what's going on. So I was, Mm -hmm. you know, listening and while I'm doing what I was doing, this other mother came over to me. And she said, I'm so sorry. And I thought to myself, I didn't hear anything. So now I'm looking for my son, like what happened? Like, you know, what might've happened? And I said, you know, I I just looked at her and she says, I'm so sorry. My daughter, um, she just called your son Brown. And I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) And I thought, I thought, my son is brown. Like I, right. I, I was, I was so confused about why she, and she says, I'm going to talk to her. And I, I was like, it's okay. You know, there's, it, it's fine. There's nothing yeah. wrong. And later on, I thought to myself, what, what was she going to say to her child? Right. That calling someone Brown is wrong. Now, all of a sudden she's having a conversation because of her discomfort and her angst She's going to have this conversation with her child that's going to make her child think that when you say brown or when you say black, you don't want to call people black. You don't want to call people brown. And it's going to ingrain this idea that you don't want to point out people's differences. You just want to just stay away from from all of that. Yes. And it's really kind of sad, right? Because because kids kids speak in color, mm-hmm. right? That's just how they speak. They see something and that's what they say. You know, mommy, I'm brown or mommy, she's pink, right? I mean, if if that's what they see, that's what they talk about. And the the conversations of wanting, like what you just said, wanting to keep their kids in their group and thinking that if they go outside give them more information they'll go outside of that group I understand how that can be very real it's like you know when parents want to keep their kids into the church it's when like parents want to keep you know they want it you want to make sure that you can relate to this child you know going forward absolutely but maybe it's also about you taking that journey with them as well yes. right maybe maybe in their growth or in their understanding you can also grow and understand and you can go with them into this new place where there are more people within this this group or or clan or tribe or whatever you know what we're creating you know only only if there's an incentive though so that's that's another thing is that unfortunately we are biologically wired not to be uncomfortable, right? Not to want to be uncomfortable. Not to want to be uncomfortable. Right. Because we fear, you know, we flee something that's dangerous. Yeah. And we seek safety. Yes. 
So I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example of what you just, uh, the story that you were sharing with um, what you wondered was going to happen with the mother and her daughter. Yeah. Right? So this is maybe about two years ago, I had finished a diversity training for this large um, accounting company. And one of the senior partners came up to me and said, Jason, you did a fantastic job. And because of this training, I realize now that I'm no longer racist. Now understand, I think I'm a bad boy, right? I think I can get down with the best of them, but I don't know that I've ever thought that I could change, move somebody, move the needle from being, you know, racist to not racist in three hours, right? I don't care how bad I think I am. I I don't know that I have that. That's like Barack Obama level, right? That's like magic. That's what, that's what <laughs> I'm last, saying. The last dragon. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I got the glow. You got right? the glow. I got the glow. And so after about 15 seconds of basically telling myself, man, I, I think I'm onto something. I just asked her, I go, man, what is it that I said that one made you realize you were racist and two made you realize that you're no longer racist? Right. And she said, it's when you started talking to me about the story the story that's playing in your head that you not, might not be aware of. One of the things that I teach is that many of our attitudes along a multitude of the spectrum, multitude of spectrums, right, are governed by, not only by our experiences, but also the stories that are being told to us by our parents, the DNA that we inherit, the environments that we live, including the environments that our parents lived, our grandparents lived, and so on and so on, because so much of this is passed down. Right. Mm -hmm. She said when she was 12 years old, she was at a concert with her mother. And halfway through the concert, she had to use the bathroom. And, you know, with a 12 year old, if they got to go, they got to go. Right. So her mother takes her to the bathroom and there's this long line of people, um, you know, basically going all the way down the hall, trying to get into the ladies room. So she's waiting and she's waiting and she's waiting. And she said at that point, she thought she was going to pee on herself. But blessedly, they're in the front of the line and the stall door opens. Mm -hmm. A woman walks out of the stall. She moves to walk into the stall, meaning the little girl, mm -hmm. this person, this partner. As she's walking toward the stall, her mom puts her hand on her shoulder and says, we'll wait. And she says, she looked at her mom and she said, mommy, I got to go to the bathroom right now. Right. And she said, we will wait. So she presses herself up against the wall. Basically, do you ever see Forrest Gump? Yes. Back in the day. You remember when he drank all those Dr. Peppers? Yes. And, <laughs> and he's, he's holding it. He, he's holding it. And he's rocking back and forth. She said, that was the image that she gave me, right? And I was doing my best not to laugh. Right. And she said, finally, another stall door opened and another woman walked out. And her mother said, you may go. Right. Now, what was the difference between the two women? Same, mm. you know, same stall in terms of the same structure. Two women walked out of two different stalls. What was the difference between the women? The difference was the first woman to walk out was African-American. Mm -hmm. The second woman to walk out was white. Mm -hmm. Now, she and her mother never had a conversation about that. They didn't talk about it when they were going back to their seats. They didn't talk about it when they were driving home. But what was reinforced in her mind was there is something bad about Black people. And I cannot be in the presence of Black people. Right. And she said, up until we had that conversation about what your internal story is telling you, mm -hmm. 
She said she had no idea why when she was walking past a group of black people or even a black person, she would cross the street. Wow. Now understand that she was a hiring manager for her accounting firm. Wow. And they were less than 1% African-American. And there you go. But there are so many, we think that when people are, that people are, are just walking around with these racist attitudes, not even knowing, not even understanding that people are walking around with attitudes that they're not even aware that they have. They're not aware that they have. That's the unconsciousness, the unconscious bias that we talk about. And, you know, some people don't even believe in unconscious bias. They're like, I know what I'm doing. And it's like, you don't always know what you're doing. You're processing 11 million bits of information per second. Right. You're not always conscious of what you're doing. It's you're just right. that simple. Maybe she hadn't had she never encountered you, she would still not know what that bias was that she was carrying around for all those years because of that one act that, you know, happened so many years ago. Yeah. Consider something. So you brought up unconscious bias and a lot of people don't believe that there's such thing as unconscious bias. Right. Right. I don't believe in unconscious bias. <laughs> I, okay. I, sw- I swear. I don't believe in unconscious bias. Here's why I don't believe in unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. What's one plus one. Two. What's two plus two. Four. What's three plus three. Six. What's 369 times 369. I don't know. Right. Most people don't. (laughs) Unless you were like an actuarial scientist, you probably don't know that off the top of your head. Right. Right. Now consider something. Here's what I did to you. Have you ever been in a fight that you lost? No, I don't fight. Okay. So I've been in three (laughs) fights. Nobody wants to beat me up. (laughs) Okay. No, that's that's great. That's great. So I've been in three fights in my life Uh and I am 0 for 3. And probably around age 11 is when I realized I got to start thinking a different way because I'm not very good at this stuff. Right. (laughs) Right. But if I get knocked unconscious, which I did in two of the three fights, right. Mm-hmm. And I like to say there was like 15 of them was only one. So only one person, but we ain't talking about that. Right. We ain't talking about that. <laughs> right. No, no. <laughs> right. But I get knocked unconscious. Unconscious means that I'm completely offline. Yes. But our brains are never offline. Our right. brains are on 24, seven, 365 days a year. And to your point, your brain's taking in over 11 million bits of information per second. There's over 86 million neurons that are within your brain and there's all kinds of chemical reactions happening every single second. It's happening right now. Yes. So when I asked you what one plus one was, did you even have to think about the answer? No. When I asked you what two plus two was, did you have to think about it? No, it was automatic. It was automatic. Right. It came just like that. But the Mm -hmm. moment that I asked you, what, what I say, 369 times 369, you're like, I don't know. Right. That's the answer that I get from 99.9% of the people that I do with, do this with. Yes. Because the very act of thinking diverts precious resources that the brain does not want to divert because the brain wants to keep you safe. Exactly. So you yes. don't have to think about what one plus one was because it's been ingrained in you from the time you were young. Right. So you don't even have to think twice about it. And I didn't have any incentive to know what 369 plus 369 was exactly so this non-conscious bias that i talk about that's why i say there's no such thing as unconscious bias because i'm never offline Mm -hmm. because my brain is consistently scouring the environments for threats 
But mm-hmm. if I have a story in my brain that says I am scared of X, Y, Z, or this particular group of people are, you know, go on and describe the terms that people use for people they don't like. Mm-hmm. I'm not even aware of it. I just act according to it. Right. So rather than unconscious, it's a subconscious. Or it's a non-conscious. A sub- subconscious, not conscious. I'm not conscious of it, but it is there. Like it lives within me. I just am not as conscious of it as I am the things that are right in front of me, like right, right right now. Exactly. And understand there's no such thing, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a non-conscious bias Mm -hmm. because a non-conscious bias keeps you safe. I know because I burned myself when I was three years old. I know (laughs) I don't ever want to touch the flame again. Right. Right? Yeah. I don't even have to think about it. I don't even have to recall the memory of when I was dumb enough to put my finger on the stove. (laughs) I just know I don't ever want to do it again because it hurt. Right. And that's what your brain is telling you. Your brain is keeping you safe. Right. So in the presence of fire, guess what I do? I walk away. Right. The trick to our wiring though, is realizing we're no longer living in the days of our ancestors. Right. And just because I see somebody who's different than me does not make them a threat. Right. I was just thinking that. I think you just read my mind. Hey, I got you. I got you. Our brains are linked. I got you. I told you I was a bad boy. I got you. <laughs> got the glow. <laughs> I got the glow. I told you. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I was just thinking that, you know, just it, just because somebody's different doesn't mean they're a threat. Yes. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that you just kind of have to, you have to stop sometimes. And we live in this society that is just, too fast, too go, go, go too much. We're, we're, we rely on that non-conscious bias, right. To get us through the day because we have so much to do. And so we don't stop to think sometimes about the ways that we interact with people that are around us or things or situations. We don't think about them because we're just too busy moving, moving, moving. So we're just going to do the most, the easiest thing because we're lazy. We are a little lazy. Like I said, 369, 369, I'm lazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have no incentive to figure that out, right? Sure. We're lazy. But if we could just slow down, pull back, give ourselves just a minute sometimes, especially when we are interacting with one another. Yes, we would do a whole lot better. I think, I think we could, we, we would then be able to stop, stop, drop and roll. We can stop, we can listen (laughs) and we can just kind of go, Hmm. Right. We learn something new. We go, you know, I mean, she said that she was not racist anymore, but that, that was interesting, but we stop and we realize more in the moment and then we can do differently in the moment right yes but there's this body of research out there that says that the way things are set up in our current society Mm -hmm. our brains are not prepared we're not prepared for the society in which we live in because Mm. things are moving too fast yes it's you know and i keep going back to this not conscious bias i completely agree with you that we should be able to get to a point where we can slow down and process 
But if our brains are just to your point earlier, if our brains are taking in over 11 million bits of information per second, but the bits of information we're taking on are things that we're hearing online, mm-hmm. things that we're hearing in the news, mm-hmm. things that our friends are sharing with us as far as text messages mm-hmm. and the multitude of apps that are on people's phones. Yep. And if all of those things, it'd be great if all those things were saying, love each other, be respectful to each other. Black is beautiful. Right. Right. It'd be wonderful if that's what was being said, but that's not what's being said. Correct. And so even if you were sitting down doing your, you know, preparing your podcast, doing work, and you got Fox News in the background, and Fox News is talking about this caravan of Afghans who are going to come here to, you know, take over America, which is a complete lie. Mm-hmm. Your brain can't tell the difference between your reality and illusion. Correct. Yeah. And then next thing you know, you walk past somebody who's of Middle Eastern descent. You believe them to be Middle Eastern descent. Mm-hmm. And you freeze up, you do the clutch, or you walk across the street. Or or you do like those men did Ahmad Aubrey and they chase you down. Yes. Saying, Why are you here when he was just there just to get a drink of water like every other jogger who came through that neighborhood? Right. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. Because we're being told, we have to get to a point where, and this is what I say to my corporate clients, is that you got to get to a point where diversity is less of a concept and is more of a thing. And when right. I say it's more of a thing, because a thing is something I can hold. It's a tangible. Thing is something I can yes. embrace. It's tangible, mm-hmm. right? Because if all you're doing is talking about diversity, but you're not enacting diversity, like what I would have loved to have done with the um, senior partner from that accounting firm who told me she was no longer racist. I would have loved to have gone back. My contract was over at that last diversity training, but I would love to have gone back a year later to see if, since if she was still a hiring manager, if the number of diverse candidates and diverse new hires had increased. Had increased, Because yep. now she was aware of her own inherent bias. Right. That would have been a very interesting development to have known about. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, you know, I so appreciate, you know, what you shared because it's complex, right? It's not an easy fix. It's complex, but it, it takes I, I often say it takes courage. It takes courage to be able to see and to, to confront ourselves, right? Yes. We do it, you know, some of us do it all the time, right? We confront ourselves. We go, crap, why am I doing that? I shouldn't be doing that. And then we go in and we go, oh my God, this is why. And whatever it brings up, we deal with it and then we move on, right? And there are always going to be things to bring up because I genuinely believe that everybody, all of us are walking around with generational trauma, not just marginalized. I think everybody has generational trauma Um, because, because I think to myself, Um, If you are descended of slave owners, Mm -hmm. you have some serious generational trauma to take care to, to, to take care of within yourself as well, because how do you think it felt to be maybe the wife of a slave owner who had to watch his, her husband go and rape his slaves and then come and sleep in your bed. And then 
they have babies that are his. And now you have to, you know, all of these things, this is, this is all trauma for, yes. for everybody, right? Um, not excusing the system, not excusing what happened, but only simply understanding that everyone has trauma. And so I think that what's not happening in not confronting the history is that no one is confronting their own generational trauma rather than saying, yes, this happened. And, you know, we can be responsible just like it happened to, um, uh, all black people who were taken from Africa, no matter where they ended up. Right. Mm -hmm. We have to confront ours. We have to go, we don't know where we're from. We have, you know, these, these are some of the things that have happened, but white people think that they don't have to confront their part of the story. And until they can confront their part of the story, I don't know that we're in the same place to kind of, you know, move forward. So we're, it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard work. It takes courage. It takes gumption. It takes, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It takes, it takes a lot. It takes the same Mm -hmm. kind of gumption as you put it to do what we do every single day. And that's just to get out of bed and go into a society that clearly says it doesn't want us to be here. Yes, it does. And what I generally, yeah, what I generally tell people is um, because, you know, I hear everything you just said is people will say, well, I'm not that person. My grandfather didn't own slaves, you know, mm-hmm. um, look at me. How can you say that I have white privilege because I can't afford to pay off my student loans, you know, mm-hmm. all the things, because people generally think when they talk privilege, they think of it being this tangible thing, this right. tangible thing, meaning that I have all this wealth without recognizing it's not the wealth that you have or don't have. It's the embedded wealth that you come with by nature of your skin color. Right. Because race in itself is a social construct. Yes. It's a social construct that said, this is acceptable. This is not. To look like this means you're acceptable. To look like this means you're unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it creates this element of have and have nots. I'll give you an example. So I have 25 consultants who work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, we found out two months ago that my company were in the top 5% of employee and labor relations consultants in the country. Congratulations. Hey, thank you so much. Very proud of what we've created. But when I go into a room with my consultants, and let's say that four of them for this particular engagement are white, and I'm the only African American. And let's say that the client has spoken to me on the phone, but has never seen me. It never fails that they will go to my consultant Mm -hmm. and put their hand on and say, Jason, it's a pleasure to meet you. (laughs) Right? Yes. Only for my consultant to say, I'm not the guy you want to talk to. It's this guy. And then you see their faces go bright red and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Now, if I were to call them racist in the moment, they would say that I'm not racist. I just didn't know what you look like. Mm-hmm. Without understanding that that non-conscious bias, that non-conscious programming says in order to be at whatever level they anticipate right. I am. Yes. From a business standpoint, I have to be white. Right. But to get them to understand that takes work yes because first it means you have to be honest with the bias that you show up with in the moment yes and if you show up with that bias in the moment then chances are you're showing up with that bias in other aspects of your life yes so i'm not asking you to be perfect i'm just asking you to be aware correct 
And if right. you're aware of this, I'm then asking you to be aware of how laws, how policies, how corporate structures may unfairly impact people who look like me. Yes. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to quote Martin Luther King and you're going to cherry pick his quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> where men and women are judged by the content of the character, not by the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. Understand to get to the point where people are judged by the content of their character, you have to first erase the bias that you have against people who don't look like you. Mm-hmm. When I talk about systemic change, I'm talking about a systemic sense of honesty. Yes. And if you're not going to be honest, you can't change the system. Yes. Yes. You used to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not going to be honest, you can't change the system. It, it, does, it doesn't work because here's what happens is we go back to 2020 where there's another, we go back to the George Floyd moment mm-hmm. when for a month, a month and a half, and I'm just being kind when I give it a month and a half, right. there was this groundswell of support for America becoming better than America has ever been. Mm-hmm. And then five days later, we go right back to this uncomfortable reality. In fact, in many cases, we've gone backward because we've had a repeal of voting rights. Right. Because we have teachers across the nation who cannot even mouth the words yes in a Mm -hmm. classroom for fear of being terminated right yes we have a partisan governmental system Mm -hmm. that's not just partisan based on being republican and democrat but it's also partisan in terms of you're either with white supremacy or not right and And truly if we truly are going to be a great nation which i truly love america mm mm-hmm Let's do the things that we force other countries to do. Yes. It's, it's a little bit like when I talk about um, companies that donate a ton of money out to outside endeavors for diversity mm-hmm. and equity. But when you look within the yes. company itself, they're not living up to those ideals that they're paying for or that they're trying to promote on the outside. So, it's, yes. you know, that's, that's what we are. It's, it's kind of the way that the, the country is right. Mm-hmm. We want, we want to talk about women's rights and, and, and girls rights and outside of our country. And yet here within our borders, we have a very contentious relationship with women, with, marginalized people with you know there's there's contention within so i think you're right and look let's let's be real i i am very good at pointing this out to people and it ticks people off when i do it but look if you were going to cast judgment against the way the taliban treats women in afghanistan and you're going to cast judgment upon the way you perceive Islamic law disenfranchises women, Mm -hmm. then I don't want to hear you talking about how you support this Texas abortion law. Right. Because, and I will say this as a man, who am I to ever tell a woman what to do with their body? I don't have that right. I know we live in a patriarchal society and you can make the argument that that's part of what's wrong with society. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's right. But... (laughs) 
look, if we're, go- if we're going to be the standard bearer that we believe ourselves to be, then let's be the standard bearer. Right. I agree. I agree because I, I just, because to me, it seems like, like dissonance, right? Yes. It's, 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 you're saying one thing out this side, you say another thing on this side and you think that these things, they don't match. Yes, they don't exactly. match. Um, so it's just definitely dissonant. Yes. <laughs> well, we've had a very, I can't even find an adjective right now that I would use, but it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today, uh, Jason. And I know that you have your book, Bias, Racism, and the Brain, that I will yes. be linking in the show notes. Thank you. You also have another book, don't you? I do. People oh, Matter Most. People Matter Most. I don't like that book. You know, it was an Amazon bestseller. I'm, hey, I'm, I'm as candid as I could be. If you're gonna buy a book, buy Bias, Racism, in the Brain. <laughs> much, much better book. <laughs> well, I thank you for your honesty. My pleasure. Uh, that's awesome. Um, is there anything that you would like to bring forth that we have not covered in this conversation, but that you want to make a point of right now that I have not asked you about? Yeah, I'll say this. Big ups to Black women, such as yourself, who are out there being difference makers at every single level because you are the backbone of our country and big ups to you. That's all I can say. Thank you. Thank you. That's so nice. So nice to hear. So nice to put out there into the ethers. Thank you. So before I let you go, mm-hmm. my final question that I ask all of my guests is, what is your favorite dish? We're talking food now. Oh, man, my favorite dish is probably why my blood sugar is so high is um, <laughs> <laughs> a German chocolate cake. Ooh. I, I love <laughs> German chocolate cake. I, man, I could see if if I had, if I had my choice and my wife would never allow me to do this because, you know, she is a wonderful, wonderful uh, protector of me. Right? Well, I was going to say, cause she loves you too much. She, she loves me too much. Basically I would sit there cause I'm a big, I'm a huge comic book fan. Um, I would sit there watching Black Panther oh, with yes. a German chocolate cake <laughs> and a spoon and a glass of milk. <laughs> I could eat that bad boy by myself and be okay. Right? Other people choose chips. You choose a German chocolate cake. Man, I cannot get enough. Blessedly, I only hold off to the holidays. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for being here. It has been such a pleasure. I look forward to uh, connecting with you again offline. Um, thank you. Hey, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful format. I love it. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And finally, before you go, don't forget, we have a date. See you soon.